Hi folks, my name is Kim and this is The Contemporary Educator, a podcast dedicated to all of my fellow teachers out there who are trying to figure out all of the demands placed on The Contemporary Educator. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge that I am a settler on the unceded traditional territories of the Lekwungen peoples of the Esquimalt and Songhees nations. So today I want to talk about mental health. Um, I am specifically trying to kind of tailor uh, the information that I provide on, on providing a more inclusive space in terms of students' mental health and supporting their mental health. And one of the things that we need to actually start talking about is mental health, particularly what's going on right now with all the COVID and pandemic crises. So um, students, you know, are, are always kind of going through a myriad of different mental health concerns, um, predominantly anxiety and depression. Those are often comorbid issues, meaning that um, they take place at the same time. Students are rarely just experiencing anxiety or just experiencing depression. Quite often they're experiencing a mix of both. One might be more prevalent than the other, um, but it's usually a combination. And even our students who are taking medications or have been prescribed medications for it, um, usually they're prescribed an anti-anxiety medication, which also helps to treat depression. So as we move forward, um, that these are things that students are not only going to be experiencing during the pandemic, but are going to be significantly exacerbated during the pandemic. And even as things are starting to return to normal, and I think, you know, things are starting to, not 100%, of course, and we're kind of phasing back into normalcy here in Canada, but even still, students are, they're at an increased risk of experiencing things like anxiety and depression, and um, particularly students who may also have um, like obsessive compulsive tendencies or anything like that, um, all of the hand washing and all of those additional things that we're, we're doing now and, and that we were really doing before as teachers, but that now is more emphasized in the media and is more kind of touted as like life-saving measures, the more anxious our students are going to be feeling. So it's important to kind of have an awareness of that and how we can um, support them, even if we're not in person with them, or if we are in person, how those signs might have actually changed somewhat, or uh, the presentation of those experiences might have changed. So you'll hear me saying experiencing anxiety and experiencing depression rather than has anxiety or has depression. This is for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that even students who haven't received a diagnosis of anxiety or a diagnosis of depression uh, are likely still experiencing anxiety and depression. Both anxiety and depressive symptoms are actually really normal. It's really normal to feel anxious in, in school. It's really normal to feel anxious on the first day of school. It's normal to feel anxious before a test, before a performance. So there's lots of different scenarios in which um, anxiety is fully normal and well actually anxiety is always fully normal but that some of our students who maybe don't have a diagnosis might be experiencing some of those symptoms much more significantly than they're used to. The other reason that I say experiences anxiety and experiences depression rather than has anxiety or has depression is that slapping a label onto a mental health diagnosis can feel for students a little like a lifelong sentence. And so when they hear, I have anxiety, it can sometimes make them feel as though it's ingrained in their person and ingrained into who they are. And that's problematic because anxiety, particularly in youth, 
is a changing presentation and given new circumstances can change dramatically too. However, if they're married to the idea of having a diagnosis, I am an anxious person, then it makes it that much more difficult for them to start to identify as anything other than anxious. It makes it that much more difficult for them to acknowledge that they're choosing different ways of responding in what would have previously been an anxiety-provoking situation for them. So anxiety, in some regards, is, it's, an, it's an evolution. And not only is it an evolution, but students, once they've received a diagnosis, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to experience it in those extremes for the entirety of their lives. And so it's important to start to look at removing the diagnosis from the person and allowing students the opportunity to do that too. Some students, when they hear that they quote unquote have anxiety or have depression, it can actually um, help them, them not feeling alone, um, feeling as though there's a reason for the way that they feel and that there's something that's prevalent enough that it warrants a diagnosis. So for some students, it's really helpful it's important to find that distinction, though, uh, between what, whether or not the student is finding it to be a helpful diagnosis, a helpful terminology to start to use, or whether it's a hindrance. And for teachers, it's not as big of a deal just because we're not their counselors as well. So we don't need to help them through that process of processing what a diagnosis looks like for them. But we do need to be aware of how we're using our language to talk about it if it is something that the students are wanting to talk about in class or if it explains some of the reason behind uh, a student not being able to complete a particular assignment in a particular way. So with that said, uh, I want to speak specifically today about COVID. I'm going to talk a lot about anxiety and depression and particularly language around diagnoses. That's a huge um, passion and interest of mine. So there's going to be other podcasts that are dedicated solely to uh, language and how we can utilize language to create a more therapeutic space for our students. Just a quick distinction here. I'm very aware that there's like a difference between therapy and therapeutic. So a Therapy session is with a registered counselor, somebody who has specific training in counseling practice and who can um, utilize important strategies and, and tools to support somebody in a particular phase of life or an experience that they're having. Therapeutic, on the other hand, is kind of anything that feels safe, relaxing, and supportive. So Like going for a run can feel very therapeutic. Being out in nature can feel therapeutic. Yoga is therapeutic. But it's not specifically addressing the things that are causing issues in other areas of our lives. So that's the distinction there. And what I'm trying to promote here is um, how we can create a therapeutic space. So just in coming back to COVID, there's been a huge increase in the past little while of uh, COVID-related tools online for people who are experiencing anxiety and depression since COVID started. So if you look online and you search all, search mental health during COVID, of course right now it's too soon to come out with studies, but I can imagine that by next year there's going to be all these studies that show all the increases in, um, in anxiety, depression, increases in other types of diagnoses as well. Um, I know that there has been a huge increase in things like uh, overdose and substance use. Um, there's been, a, there will be, a, I'm sure, a recorded increase in addictions overall. 
all sorts of different mental health issues are coming up really, really strongly right now due to COVID. And so I don't have any hard studies to cite to you today. That's just because they don't exist yet, but stay tuned. I'm sure I'll do a follow-up episode where um, I can cite what the actual changes are because I'm really interested to see what that actually is going to look like. But with the rise of mental health resources, we can safely assume that the resources have been developed because there's a need that's developed as well. And so, you know, as teachers, we're likely going to be exposed to our students more often than anyone else. There's a lot of mental health facilities that are still not seeing people face to face. Um, I know that a lot of schools in the States, however, are still are now going back full time to regular class sizes. We're not doing that here in Canada. We're going part time. Uh, Teachers will be there full time, but students won't be. And so we are going to be the adults in our students' lives who have eyes on them the most aside from their parents. And we might even be the only ones that they have access to for a while. Because there's an increase in mental health concerns that are rising, and there's also um, a shortage of mental health professionals, at least here there's a shortage of mental health professionals, we can safely assume that they're going to be inundated with referrals as soon as places return to capacity. And it's going to be very difficult for them to be taking students who aren't presenting with severe mental health crises, such as suicidality, um, heroin addictions, those kinds of things. They're going to be looking at severity of cases as opposed to um, looking at moderate to severe mental health, which has been a mandate for most of our mental health agencies. They're just not going to have the capacity. So that doesn't make us mental health professionals. It doesn't put teachers in a position where we now have to be their therapists. But it does mean that we can begin to create therapeutic spaces and make sure that we're paying attention to the needs that are arising. And so um, what I'm hoping to address here is how we can start to pay attention to some of those things, both online and in person, so that we can start to adjust and adapt and hopefully create a little bit of stability for our students so that they can wait for mental health resources when they become available. I'm not sure what wait lists look like everywhere, but our wait lists here are usually quite long. For instance, in order to get into child and youth mental health, um, unless you're on the high-risk team, and again, the high-risk team is suicidality, so that would be considered severe mental health, and they would be referred right away, and they'd see somebody immediately. For moderate to severe mental health, those are students whose lives aren't in danger. There's, in some cases, like an eight-month wait sometimes longer. And so we need to try to look at how we can create safety for our students during that wait period, especially since during COVID, I'm sure that the wait lists are going to be much longer. There's still addictions treatment centers that aren't even operational yet, and we don't have very many of them in in BC. So um, just keeping all of that in, in mind moving forward. I remember a former supervisor of mine when I actually worked at Child and Youth Mental Health when I was there on my practicum. She was super insightful and and super amazing. And um, she would always say whenever we'd meet a new student um, or a new youth, well, youth are the barometer for health in their family. And so when we meet these young people, we get a sense of what's going on in the home. And that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is coping in the same capacity. But what it does mean is that youth are presenting on behalf of multiple people in their families. Some families, they've adapted and found ways to fit a particular mold that's expected of them. 
That doesn't necessarily mean that their young people in that family aren't responding to some of the challenges that that family is experiencing. So some of the, the signs that we'll notice when a young person's feeling anxious, and this is in person, we're going to notice that they're fidgeting a lot. Uh, they might be really distracted or have a hard time concentrating. Um, they might be asking to leave the room a lot or take lots of walks or breaks, going to get water, go to the bathroom. They might be on their phones a lot. Even if they've got friends in the room, they might also still be on their phone quite a bit. They might be really quiet or reserved. They may appear disheveled or unkempt. Uh, they might not be submitting work. Even if you've gone around the room and you've looked over their shoulder and you've seen that they've done all of this work and it was nearly finished and you say to them, just hand in anything, even if it's not done, I'll collect what you've got done so far and they're still not handing it in. That's um, an anxiety presentation. They may be doodling a lot in their notebooks. The more extreme examples of anxiety might be that they're not showing up to school at all. They may be confrontational. They may be inseparable from friends. So they have friends who stop into their classroom to say, quote unquote, just to come by and say hi, or who stop into the classroom to um, try to sit with them, or that they're leaving the class to go and find their friends and wandering the hall with them. Those are all anxiety presentations. They may also kind of throw themselves into a book. So if you do silent reading and you don't have phones in your class and you're like, oh, well, the phone issue isn't a problem because I hang it on my wall, they might start reading a lot more often and have their kind of face in the book. These all seem really obvious and um, chances are you've noticed them and have recognized that these are responses to anxiety. However, I think that we're often put in a position where when we see the student with their nose in the book or we see a student who's talking to another student excessively, we're often correcting those behaviors rather than identifying it as an anxiety response. So like I said, anxiety and depression are often comorbid. So you might also see a young person who is not super excited about anything that you're doing, even if they were previously a student who was really engaged in your class and really excited about school. And the, you know, more extreme example would be, um, you might notice that they've been cutting or um, self-harming. You might notice that they are drawing on their skin a lot too. Sometimes they do that to try to mask or hide any self-harming behaviors. Um, so just kind of taking note of some of those things and that they often will present simultaneously. So you're unlikely to see just anxiety presentations or just depression presentations. You're likely to see presentations of both. Anxiety is often when students are focused more on the future. So when they're worried about what's going to happen next, they're worried about what's going to happen on the test, if they're going to do well, they're coming up with kind of self-fulfilling prophecies in a lot of cases about how things are going to go and how things are going to transpire and they're terrified of what that's going to look like. Depression on the other hand is when students are dwelling on the past. So it's looking at they feel regretful, remorseful, guilt, and shame. Those two things you often can't separate them out. Let's use testing as an example. They sit down and they do a test and they were so anxious before that test that they end up not being able to answer what they know on the test. And they might know the material, they may have studied for weeks, they may have hired a tutor and really worked hard, they may have been sitting with you after school every day to learn the material better, and then they still didn't perform the way that they wanted to on the test. 
Now they've switched gears from the anxiety presentation into the depressed presentation. They get the test results back and they look at it and they notice that they didn't do as well as they wanted. Maybe they didn't even pass. And now they're remorseful and they're beating themselves up over having not performed the way that they wanted to. So now it's guilt and shame around anxiety. So the two things, like I said, you cannot really filter them out. They present very similarly and often comorbidly. So how are these things going to present online? If we're not seeing our students, we can't look and say, oh, that student is disheveled today or that student has their nose in a book today. And if we're not seeing our students every single day, how are we going to get a read on them? How are we going to start to understand what it is that they're experiencing? Some ways that we can start to filter that out is to look at kids who were once engaged in person are no longer engaged. So if normally they were a student who was handing assignments in on time, or even if they weren't, if they were attending regularly, or you had a good rapport with them, they enjoyed your class or seemed to enjoy your class, and then all of a sudden they're not participating. That's a pretty clear sign that a student is struggling. If the student is not making Zoom meetings because they're still sleeping. So if you hear from them, oh, I'm sorry, I missed that Zoom meeting, I was asleep, and your Zoom meeting was scheduled for noon or one o'clock, that could be a sign of depression or anxiety. A lot of people are going to chalk it up to disrupted sleep patterns, students staying up all night and then being up or being asleep all day. And that's true too. But part of that disrupted sleep pattern, them staying up all night, is often an anxiety response as well. They just have so many different ways in which to keep themselves up all night that they might not even be in touch with that feeling at the time. It doesn't mean that they don't know that they are experiencing anxiety or depression. It just means that when they're staying up really late at night, they might not know why it is they can't seem to put their phone down in the moment. The other kind of signs could be not replying to emails if you've emailed them repeatedly, um, not showing up for check-ins, even if it's not an assignment that they're missing, but you've emailed just to say, how are you? We're missing you in class. Um, is there anything going on? And they're not replying. If they won't turn their camera on during a Zoom meeting. Now, Students aren't obligated to turn their cameras on, so there is an important distinction there that they don't have to have their camera on. And, you know, to be fair, there have been times when I was in my jammies and drinking coffee and being like, I don't really want to have my camera on during this staff meeting. But if this is a student who typically would have their camera on and it's a full class engaged project that you're working on or a Zoom meeting that you're working on, and all of a sudden this student doesn't have their camera or their audio on, that could be an indicator. If on the reverse side, the student is emailing you excessively. So you're waking up every day to four or five different emails from the student, none of which are about anxiety or depression, but it's very clear that the student is trying to get your attention somehow. That's another thing just to pay attention to. Another thing that can be common is a student who maybe before COVID, if you knew the student, they typically didn't have any processing difficulties in terms of they'd get the assignment, they'd understand the material, and they'd be able to answer the questions and meet the criteria. If a student has suddenly started to not understand criteria, not understand basic simple concepts like a read and respond that they would have done many, many times throughout their schooling, they don't have an IEP that indicates that they have processing difficulties, it's always important to be aware of their IEPs. But all of a sudden, the student is having difficulty engaging with your work and it's unclear why it is that they don't understand the assignment. 
So they might email you repeatedly saying, I'm sorry, I still don't get it. Or you email back a different way of explaining the assignment and then they respond with, so is it like this? And you're like, no, it's not. And so you keep having this kind of back and forth to try to explain it. That's a very clear indicator that the student is struggling. Our processing and ability to understand tasks and instruction is significantly impaired when we're experiencing anxiety or depression. And so it's not that this student isn't trying and it's not that they aren't wanting to understand it. It's that their brain has actually just switched gears into, okay, we're actually just trying to survive right now. And this is not part of survival. This isn't meeting my basic needs in terms of food, water, shelter, love. Like it's just not. So we're going to put that on the back burner and we're going to focus on the immediate concern. So that can be a common symptom that you notice. So these are just some of the ways and you might notice other ways in which young people are expressing or experiencing anxiety or depression, particularly post-COVID, during COVID, during COVID, because uh, we're not really out of the woodwork yet. Um, but here's some things that you can do. So these aren't going to necessarily be like hard and fast examples that work for everybody, for every student, and for every classroom. Most of what I've talked about now are presentations that you'll notice from between middle school and high school. So it would be kind of the 12 to 18 year old range. And if you work with young adults um, in terms of like 18 to 24, they'll also quite often exhibit these same kinds of qualities when they're experiencing anxiety or depression. But some things that you can look at doing is checking in with them regularly and trying to get a read on their well-being. So if you notice that the student isn't handing in work, try emailing them or contacting them in a way um, that doesn't actually address their lack of school engagement. Sometimes just removing that, that piece, taking, out, taking school out of the equation, just saying, hey, missed seeing you in Zoom meetings. How are you? What have you been up to? Um, is just an opportunity for the student to respond without feeling guilt or shame around not performing to what your expectations are. If you have a relationship with the parents or have developed one, it would be helpful to reach out to them and ask them what they're seeing at home. Ask them about their child's sleep patterns. Ask them whether or not these, this person is still connecting with friends or whether or not they're engaged with other teachers. All of those kinds of things are important information. Some students, if they felt disconnected from your class before COVID, it's certainly not going to help that we're in this kind of weird state now. So it could be that they're engaged in their other classes and that they're trying and struggling to find a way to connect with yours. Another idea is just to try to find a way to have eyes on the students. So one of my former supervisors, when I worked at another Alt-Ed, I would have students when I was seeing them for outreach. And so when I did outreach work, I was not just teaching, but I was counseling as well. And so a lot of these young people couldn't attend day school because they were um, struggling with addictions or severe anxiety to the point where they couldn't attend. And so I would go sometimes weeks where I'm trying to get a hold of these students, I'm calling them, I'm texting them, I'm calling their families, and these students aren't responding. Finally, I'd get a student who would respond and say, I'm not going to do schoolwork, I'm not going to talk to you about the issues in my life, but fine, I'll meet for coffee as long as you'll pay. <laughs> Which, fine, yeah, fine, I'll pay. But... I would talk to my supervisor and she said, just do whatever it takes to have eyes on them. And it's such a good expression and a good way to look at it because 
um, that is really what we're trying to do. When we have eyes on our students, we get way more of an understanding about what's going on in their lives. And so we can start to do some of those internal assessment measures that we do without even really thinking about it in school. So we start to look, are they disheveled or unkempt? Were they able to make it on time? Uh, did they show up with a friend? Did they show up by themselves? Are they able to engage in conversation? Are they, you know, do they look teary-eyed? Do they look tired? Do they look like they haven't eaten? So all of these kinds of things are, are important to take stock of when we are able to see them in person. And when we're not, when we're just doing teaching online, we miss so many of these important cues. So is there a way to have eyes on them? So does that mean schedule a school meetup where that student and maybe you have three or four students can meet on the lawn and you guys just do a check-in if you're not back to school, that is? Is there a way to schedule a Zoom meeting with this student and maybe the school counselor if they're connected to the school counselor or a youth and family counselor that they may be connected to or their parent? Whatever is going to help you see their appearance because if you're their person if you're their healthy adult they're going to to need you to see those cues they may not actually come right out and tell you what's going on but if you know them and you're their healthy adult they're going to take it a lot better if you're the one who's pointing out i'm really worried i think that something's going on here for you that we need to get you some support for now i'm not saying that you need to then be their support system in fact i'm really discouraging you from trying to be their therapist as well we can do a lot of harm to students when we aren't qualified or trained to do therapy. And there's a lot of folks out there who call themselves therapists and therapists. And as a therapist, I've had to clean up a lot of that stuff. So we need to make sure that we are referring them to the people who are qualified to help them actually process what's going on for them. But if you're the person who's already doing this assessment in your head and saying, I know that you need this other person to talk to, they're going to be that much more likely to go and talk to somebody else because they trust you. And if they trust you and you're saying, I want to help you find an adult that can support you with this, they're going to more than likely commit to that and say, okay, let's do it. If it's somebody that they don't know or somebody that they already don't really have relationship with who's saying, I think you need to go see a counselor. It's really hard to get students to commit to that. It's really difficult because like I said, not everyone out there who calls themselves a, a counselor is doing therapeutic work in a way that um, is actually going to be supportive. So if you're helping them along that process, they're going to trust it a lot more and they're going to get a lot more out of it. They're going to go into their counseling session with their guard down thinking this is a person I can trust because my healthy adult told me I can. Finally, if you're still having difficulty getting in touch with your students and you are feeling very concerned, try not to hold that yourself. Try to find another adult who can help you track this person down. Reach out to your colleagues, reach out to the school counselor or another teacher you know that this student has a good relationship with. Reach out to their families. Whatever you can do, try to find another adult who can connect with this young person too. Because... We, like I said, we're not their therapist, but we can be there for them. And even if you know that you haven't had as much opportunity to develop a relationship with this student as you would like, and maybe you know that your colleague does have more of a rapport with this student, it doesn't mean that your colleague is going to have opportunities to see what you're seeing. 
So it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is going to be able to understand that this student is maybe struggling right now or having um, increased difficulty during COVID. So keep that in mind as well. Um, And just know that things are likely to get worse before they get better. With this significant disruption in routine for students and for teachers, it's going to be very difficult for a while before students start to stabilize again. And so there may be students right now who have actually been thriving during COVID because they don't want to be physically in a school. They prefer the online learning. And then you've got the students on the flip side who are really struggling with the online learning. They need the social interaction. And so you're going to have both sides to it. And you're going to have very few middle ground. People who are coasting, they're okay either way. In most cases, you're going to have those who are really struggling or really thriving. And so as we start to return to some sort of normalcy and we're still finding new routines and new ways of being, keep in mind that things are going to get worse before they get better. Because those people who are coasting are likely to flip-flop to one of those sides before they start to coast again. The people who are currently really struggling are likely going to continue to struggle until they have some sense of routine. They might have a slow uptake as they start to be able to be more social, as they get to see their teachers more often, as they get to you know do their extracurriculars again. You might notice that their mood is steadily increasing. But there's going to be a bit of an overlap with the folks who right now were doing well during COVID who are starting to struggle at the thought of returning back to school. One of the best things that we can do for anxiety is exposure. And you practice exposing yourself to the things that you're anxious to until you realize that they're safe. Well, for our students who are extremely anxious, feeling extremely anxious about going to school, who this the first day of September is a huge exposure risk for them. They go in and they do it. And it has taken them from September until winter break. And they built up all of this courage to experience a moderate, low to moderate experience of anxiety rather than severe. They go to winter break and then two weeks off and they have to come back and do it again. But rather than severe, it's moderate to severe. And so now with four months off, having to return back to school when it's not routine and it's not normal is going to really ramp up those experiences of anxiety. So try to keep that in mind too. I hope that this has been helpful and my goal is um, to keep kind of talking about mental health in classrooms and then if there's particular topics that kind of come up that I'm noticing could be helpful or that I'm kind of grappling with still, I'll post those as well. And I hope that we can have some communication about it. So folks, thank you for tuning in and I really appreciate your support. If you're interested, you can subscribe to my podcast or you can subscribe to my blog or both, um, thecontemporaryeducator.com. And just remember to teach, emote, and repeat. Repeat.